everybody, and thank you for joining us for another Alliant Employee Benefits Compliant with Alliant podcast, bringing you the latest insights into employee benefits compliance. I'm your host, Christine Blanca. I'm the Director of Compliance here at Alliant Employee Benefits. And as always, uh, my trusty companion, Diana Craig, is here. Hi, everyone. Also an attorney here at the Alliant Compliance Department. So it's a very exciting day in, in um, Compliant with Alliant. We have some new regulations. We haven't seen new regulations for a while. And um, those regulations got some mainstream media coverage as well. And essentially, the IRS, Department of Labor, and HHS issued proposed regulations that would allow HRAs to pay for individual health insurance coverage. And that's a big deal, at least on its face, yeah? It's definitely a big deal. It's a just huge change in the landscape. And I think that uh, Diana and I just wrote each other sentences, this is big, <laughs> via email to each other. So, Or maybe it's not. I mean, I think we want to talk through about whether this is the panacea or not, and there's a lot of things to consider. But essentially, last year, President Trump signed an executive order that directed agencies to sort of relax some rules around association health plans, short-term limited duration insurance, and health reimbursement arrangements. And we've seen the guidance on both the association health plans and the short-term limited duration Makes sense that we're now seeing this HRA guidance. And essentially, and, and, and mostly that executive order was intended to sort of allow some more options in maybe smaller markets for individuals or smaller employers. Um, but they do have impact on, on, on large employers. And in essence, here's what those regulations do, the proposed regulations do. They allow the integration of HRAs. So in an HRA, with individual market coverage. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means. I'm going to let Diana talk about that. And then they create a new, quote, accepted benefits class of HRA that falls outside of ACA regulation. So you see there's sort of um, obviously a theme of less regulation. So let's talk through a little bit about the background and how we got here. Yeah, Chris, great. Um, I am happy to do that. Um, I also just want to kick it off by saying I'm super mad at the IRS for ruining my week this week. Always mad at the department. Back when we used to have regs all the time, she's always mad at them. Unlike, you know, the Friday before July 4th. But this was this was Tuesday when this came out. Oh. Or remember, they do stuff on like Christmas Eve. I, I you know, so I just, you know, not like everybody else loves the IRS, but I'm just particularly surly about them today. Yeah. But what am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be talking about a little bit of background on HRAs, why this is such a big change. So, you know, just so we all are on the same page, HRAs are a type of account-based plan. They must be funded solely with employer dollars. And we used to use them, you know, pretty broadly and widely for all the time for a number of things. Oh, just an, any number of things. And then when the ACA was enacted, there were just significant new regulatory requirements that really constrained how we use HRAs. First and foremost, an HRA, um, at least a general purpose HRA, is an employer-sponsored self-funded plan. That means it's, it's minimum essential coverage under pay or play. It also means, in theory, it's subject to the ACA. The big snafu there were it's not providing first dollar coverage of preventive care. And by their nature and design, they don't, uh, they have lifetime and annual limits, which the ACA precludes on essential health benefits. Yeah, so real quickly, you know, so the ACA came in and put all these market on plans, right? You have to do X, Y, and Z, and an HRA just stands there as the bucket of money. 
Yeah, so uh, we solved a lot of those problems. Uh, our regulators tried to solve those problems by creating an integration requirement. And they said, you can't integrate with individual coverage. You can integrate with an otherwise ACA compliant employer-sponsored plan, preferably your own plan, but it could be another employer plan as well. And then they went one step further and they said, um, we can't, no employer plan in HRAs, other employer plans, can reimburse individuals for individual insurance premiums. So um, that was another issue. It, any employer who's trying to pay for somebody to go into the individual market, that was a huge just no, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. They labeled them non-compliant employer payment plans. Mm -hmm. So you know, rather than compliance, do we hold up the big red stop sign? You may not. We say there's risk here, there's this, there's that. That was one of the things that over the past however many years, we just say no. You yeah, can't do that. <laughs> that's just the landscape where we were looking at do HRAs or can they meet ACA market reforms? Can we reimburse individual premiums? No, it was an employer payment plan. All that changed in Tuesday on proposed regs, subject to some very specific requirements. Uh, Chris, do you want to talk about what our requirements are for these individually integrated HRAs? Yes. So let's talk a little bit about how these um, how these would work. So. In order for an HRA to be integrated or to integrate with individual coverage, it has to have, um, you have to substantiate. So you have to substantiate your employees and their dependents enrollment in the individual coverage. So you can't just put a bucket of money down there and say, here you go, have at it. You have to um, make sure that you get proof of that. It's either a document from a third party, so let's say the carrier, showing that the participant and the dependents covered by the HRA are actually enrolled, or insurance card, an EOB, whatever the case may be, or, and this is the imagine the direction folks would go, in attestation by the participant. So just signing, saying, yep, I got my coverage, my dependents have my coverage, we're all good, the date coverage began, or will begin in the name of the provider of the coverage. And then substantiation is required then with each um, proof or for each request for reimbursement. So for each request for reimbursement, you either have to submit whatever the EOB may be or the bill, or you can also as an employee just attest. Yeah. Um, so essentially it's very little oversight is the way I see that. Yeah, and, you know, and moving on to the next requirement, which sort of addresses non-discrimination, I, I sort of feel like the elephant in the room and a lot of employers' ears perk up like, this is my chance to offload my bad risk or my sick employees. And so um, the proposed rules include various non-discrimination provisions that are designed to prevent just that. So designed to pre prevent health status discrimination. And so first and foremost, they basically say, if you offer this, you have to offer it basically on a class-wide basis. So on the same terms to the same class of employees, and if you offer this, you can't offer it next to a traditional group health plan. But I just wanna hit really quickly the classes they laid out because they were very specific. So you can choose to offer this uh, or not based on uh, full-time status, part-time status, seasonal status, a bargained status, um, employees in a waiting period, employees under age 25, um, basically another one that says foreign employees who work abroad, so that's uh, resident aliens with no U.S. source income, and then based on sort of rating region. And I kind of just wanted to spit those out and call out the few that seem a little odd, um, you know, age 25, no U.S. source-based income. Mm -hmm. They're actually pulling those classes 
from 105A regulations. They're blowing off the dust. <laughs> I know, which makes us very nervous. I always get nervous when we start talking about enforcement on 105H. But that's where those classes are coming from. And they've said employers can kind of pick and choose whether they want to define those classes as defined under 105H or as more traditionally defined under our pay or play rules. Um, so interesting. The other non-discrim thing I want to hit really quickly is they say once you offer this within a class, it has to be the same terms to employees within the class, same reimbursement amounts, big caveat, except the amount um, of the HRA could vary based on age or by uh, possibly by covered number of dependents. And they kind of nod to 105H and say, hey, we know that doesn't like varying reimbursements based on age. We're going to fix that later. So Remember, an HRA is a self-funded medical plan, like I said in the beginning. So your 105H non-discrimination rules, which is really the main non-discrimination rubric in employer um, group health plans, applies here. So they're very much taking that head on, at least, you know, at least acknowledging it. Yeah, I mean, these the 105H rules have almost never been enforced. So interesting if this signals maybe some That's right. I mean, this is the most action 105H has had <laughs> since, I think, 1982. So, and that is the worst Compliance attorney joke ever. <laughs> it's actually since 1981, which I think I just win the nerd award for that one. Um, okay, is it my turn to hit some stuff? Okay, all right. So, yeah, I think accepted benefit HRAs. Okay. So another thing that the proposed regs do is create this sort of new animal of an accepted benefits HRA. So again, an HRA is just a self-funded um, medical plan that was otherwise subject to the full panoply of the ACA rules and regulations, which is, again, why it needed to be integrated. And so now, basically, the departments have taken this HRA and said, um, you can have this HIPAA accepted um, HRA, which is not subject to the ACA or the HIPAA portability rules um, under certain circumstances. And essentially, it's just creating another account-based plan. It functions, and Diane and I were talking about this before the podcast, because I'm sort of parsing through in my mind, how would employers use this? And it's really just functions a lot like a health FSA, but it's employer dollars and there's carryover and all that sort of thing. But um, these types of coverages cannot pay insurance premiums for group individual or Medicare. They can and it cannot exceed eighteen hundred dollars. Um, so we'll see. Well, you know, we'll see what happens here. But this is a new animal. It can pay for um, you know solely accepted benefits, COBRA, and the short-term limited duration insurance premium. So. Um, that's the new animal. We'll see what happens with it. Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious whether any of this will get much traction. I mean, we saw a couple of years ago with the 21st Century Cures Act, those uh, qualified small employer HRAs, which in theory let you let very small employers pay for individual premiums. No traction there because the rules made it just kind of difficult. You know, I think um, before I get ahead of myself, you cannot offer by the way, an individually integrated HRA, so an HRA where your employees go by individual market coverage and an accepted benefits HRA. They have to be offered. That accepted benefits HRA has to be offered with traditional coverage. So, um, and I think, you know, to, to Diana's point, it, it really will be interesting to see um, whether these things have legs and take off. And there's enough rule and regulations still in this set of proposed uh, regulations that I think it is in a free-for-all in terms of employers who want a ton of flexibility to offload risk or whatever the case may be. So, But we have some other issues, which, of course, are looming in the background, the elephant in the room, which is always there, which is pay or play for employers. Yeah, and this one, i got to tell you, I've been perseverating on um, <laughs> how these individually integrated HRAs interact with our pay or play mandate. 
So we know under Part A, you have to offer minimum essential coverage to substantially all of your employees, or you face the big Part A penalty, that sledgehammer penalty, an HRA, our general purpose, so an individually integrated HRA, could in theory solve your Part A risk if you're offering that to substantially all of your full-time employees. Um, the regulators have said we are going to release subsequent guidance um, addressing this. I mean, my question is a uh, $100 HRA, a $200 right. HRA? Right. No, I mean, and I think it probably is because you're not going to, you know, give your uh, majority of your workforce a $100 HRA and then kick them to the individual market. Yeah, um, but then, you know, do you give people a bigger HRA? Uh, so, you know, that's part A, and I think there's definitely some stuff I want to see fleshed out in regulations. And then part B, they had a really interesting analysis where they go through, and so oh, let's dear. say you have an individually integrated HRA and somebody doesn't elect it, they decline it, and they go to an exchange, the exchange has to go, well, is this affordable minimum value coverage? And they had some of the worst math here. Some really bad math. It was some super bad. I made Christy. Yeah, I did. I did the math. So, you know, if you read our alert, double so, check it. Yeah, I'm an example there, but it's it's some complicated math. It's math that it's going to be hard for employers to get their arms around. But remember, you're not eligible for an exchange subsidy unless you have an income between 100 and 400 poverty level. And thankfully, a regulator said also, we're going to come out with a safe harbor on this one, too. Right. So for employers who are interested in this, um, a, a large employers who are interested in this and, and are worried about their exposure there, we should have some. But I think this actually brings me to some sort of employer considerations and closing us out here. I think, you know, the regulations themselves really anticipate that um, the relaxing of these rules will really impact smaller employers more significantly. And I think there's enough, as I mentioned, there are enough hurdles here. So on class of employee and um, and how you offer this in a way that it's you're not just going to be able to throw in an HRA, throw some money in there, and send people off to the exchange. Um, certainly, you can't target people for who have high risk conditions. Moreover, I think it's really important to think about the individual market and the viability of the individual market and how it has struggled to stabilize with this ongoing sort of regulatory uncertainty. And so you have to think about it from an employee retention um, and what are your competitors doing? And, and you know, you still have value. There's a lot. Of, we said this when, when pay or play came. You know, there's a lot of reasons that you offer your employees coverage, which are completely unrelated to the requirements that the agencies put out. And I think that's still the case. Um, so I really think it's going to take some time for the dust to settle. The market is always very creative and fairly quick. So I'm assuming we'll see some things come to market um, and hopefully we'll see this additional pay or play guidance pretty quickly. Um, but right now, I, I think that we for large employers, you kind of want to wait and see. For smaller employers, if you want to take a look at that, you know, just read the alert and, and see what the parameters are and does it really serve your needs. So um, I think with that, are we good? All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of our Compliant with Alliant podcast series, offering you a more approachable view of employee benefits and fresh off the press. Uh, for more information, visit us online at AlliantBenefits.com.